9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Boridar pal, Kroisui Abitawi. Hello and welcome to Swansea The Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Nathan Ginn. Tonight, we're joined by Ian Timbrell, teacher, deputy head and consultant. We're talking about getting them to start. What do you do when they just won't work? Barriers, task design, motivation, all of these things. Tune in, talk it out, off we go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Swansea and Teachers Talk Radio Twilight Show. Meet Nathan Ginn. Now, as I said in the intro there, I'm hoping we're joined by Ian Timbrell. Ian, are you on the line there? I am indeed. How are you, Nathan? I'm good, thanks. Uh, and it's great to have you. Now, normally at the, at the start of the show, I talk a little bit. I, um, I I should mention again this week, it is not Twilight when we're doing the Twilight Show. I get a window <laughs> twice a year where I, it's actually twilight when we're doing the twilight show it's still dark and it's still miserable i've got a bit of a cough bit of a cold everyone at work seems to be coming down with something um how are you doing ian yes good thank you i mean uh we had uh, in wales saint Dynwyn's day uh, last night which is uh, the welsh saint valentine's day so uh, there were a few wines had last night so uh, but but all good all good Fantastic. Yep. You know, of course, yourself in Wales, I'm in uh, Swansea, you're down the road in Cardiff, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've lived in Cardiff most of my life, uh, to be honest. My, I'm originally from Bridgend. My parents didn't want me to go far, though. So uh, half an hour down the road is all that they would let me go to uni. Uh, we cram a lot in along the M4 corridor. We cram <laughs> we a do. lot in in South Wales. There's a there's a lot going on down here. Um, yeah, so um, you know we we got rushing into things, but I think you know what, let's set the scene. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I have been in education for about 17 years um, in and around the South Wales Valleys. I mean, I, my plan was actually, uh, those who know me, you know, I never intended to be a teacher. I was actually going to be a doctor originally, and that didn't quite pan out. Um, but I um, yeah, I've been teaching for 17 years. For the last five, I've been a deputy head in a primary school and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But um, those who follow me on Twitter will know that uh, I've actually taken a break from teaching at the moment to set up my own education consultancy, which has been a baptism of fire the last two weeks. I've only been in it two weeks. It's been really enjoyable and, and getting to see lots of schools. Um, but I'm, I'm very, I love challenging children. I love, you know, when those ch- there's those children who surprise you. That's what for me makes teaching is those children who've got so much going on in their life and they struggle. If we can get them to achieve something, those, those are always my favorite days in school. Fantastic. Well, that that is pretty much every day for me, you know, for my sins, uh, you know, working in alternative provision, you know, is uh, some of those challenges. And and that's why I find, you know, one of the questions we're talking about, you know, we're going to talk about really, really interesting. Um, And uh, as I say, we're going to be talking about this idea of getting them to start, um, you know, when when they're right at the beginning. And I've 
I've heard this a lot and, you know, I'm going to put it out to you, you know, people saying things like whether it be in the corridor car park, someone comes mm. up to you and say, says, uh, you know, get, getting work out of my class is like pulling teeth. <laughs> um, you know, it's that kind of thing. Now, so before we start, is that something you, you've heard, you relate to, you recognise? Yeah, I, I've heard it my entire career and, you know, and it's from such a huge range of teachers, you know, NQTs, ECTs, experienced members of staff, deputy heads, heads of department. I think, yeah, I've heard it a lot of different places. Um, and I, I find it really interesting to sort of, you know, you, you give that phrase like, getting work out of them is a bit I personally find interesting because we shouldn't be getting work out of children it's not already in there you know we should be doing that work collaboratively together um and I do find it interesting um and I'm going to look forward actually to breaking that down quite a bit of you know in my experience how have I tackled one that the attitude of that but also in reality in the classroom what do we need to do to get children to do work um, and I, I wanted to ask just, you know, a couple of probing questions, personal, questions. <laughs> you know, you can say no, if it's, but, you know, I'm sure listeners will find them interesting. I find them interesting just to kind of get like a, 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 an understanding of the man behind the teacher, as it were. But, um, you know, you, you said you, 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 uh, you weren't going to be a teacher. You went into primary rather than secondary. Was mm. that, that a deliberate choice? Um, it was. I... I basically was made redundant from a job I was in that I did after I left medical school and um, I happened to be working behind a bar and, and the, one of my dad's friends was ahead and said oh come on we need people to read in the school so I went in and I just absolutely fell in love with the job straight away and I sort of was toying between primary or secondary maths because I'm a maths geek I love maths um, and, but I, and I honestly don't I, it was literally down to the wire of which one I was going to go for and I think because I'd had that experience in primary school, um, I really enjoyed that. That's why I went into primary, I think. And um, also I had quite a poor experience of secondary school. I don't have good memories at all of secondary school. And that probably sort of had some sort of bearing on it. Um, and, and also, you know, interesting, I, you know, people might not realise as a, as a man, you know, I was also in primary myself, but mm. it did... Was it mentioned to you being a man in primary? Was was there any sort of um, distinction between that you were maybe, I don't know, stricter or you got work out of them more or that you were unique in any way? Um, yeah, I, wherever I've been in schools, I've been seen as, you know, the person who you come to for discipline and for getting children to work. And I don't know whether that's because I'm a man necessarily. I wonder if it's just my general manner um uh, but i i do think there is in some schools a default to the man f as, as the, the person with discipline if children aren't doing what they should be doing i think i see it less and less now i think we are as a society moving away from those sort of stereotypes and those gender stereotypes i've definitely seen it in some places i see it more in sense of um responsibilities that are given to people we know there is it's certainly in primary, there are a lot more men in leadership positions, and yet there's more women in teaching in primary in general. So I do find that interesting that there's still that difference um, when you go up to uh, leadership positions. 
yeah no thanks and i know like you know you're just probing a little bit but i do find these kind of nuances different and there will be people listening from different sectors different mm. sort of areas and so you know the, these, these kind of interesting bits and pieces of just people's experience of teaching it's such a broad spectrum now I, I wanted to throw in as well sort of at the start as we get started you know as i say i put out a couple of things on twitter just kind of asking probing and i know you were kind enough to respond to one of them but one of the criticisms that, that some people had with the scenario i put out that one about sort of getting work out of my classes like pulling teeth mm. was the whole class phrasing mm. and people saying you know it can't be all of the pupils but personally i've you know i've had lessons where it is all of the pupils at you know absolute car crashes um and i think that's part of teaching for me you know having bad lessons is part of teaching um at least and reflecting on them but, you know, we're going to be talking about how to do better. But how hard do you, as sort of a leader, a teacher, think teachers should be being on um, themselves to get it right? I think there is an expectation that you cannot be an outstanding teacher in every single lesson you do. Uh, you know, it is it, it's not the reality of it. We all have those disaster lessons that just, you know, they, they don't go as planned. You know, the, the work is, is not challenging enough or it's too challenging or the behaviour isn't there or just the way you live right. And I think as a, as a profession, we need to embrace those mistakes and actually go, that's fine. You know, do you know what? That lesson was a disaster. But what have I learned from it? I'll try not to make that mistake again. And I very much when I'm supporting sort of newly qualified teachers, go telling them that don't beat yourself up about a bad lesson just analyze it and learn from it and sometimes i think i've seen so many lessons over the years where particularly students and new qualified teachers a lesson is going down the pan oh, and, and they, they keep going don't they and they keep going and keep going and what actually what they need to do is go right everyone stop this isn't working let's change the plan and it, it's it makes it very hard to do when someone's observing you isn't it it's easy said than done sometimes but I think we need to embrace those mistakes and actually go, do you know what, it's a learning experience. Yeah, and, you know, so we'll be talking about some of those things and some of these refining and bits and pieces. And the other bit I wanted to kind of just throw out there in our, you know, our very sort of starting off feeling out the topic. And we, as you said, we, you know, we're going to get a bit more in, break it down as we go. One of the other things that I put out, which, you know, I was thinking about barriers, and maybe this will give people maybe a breakdown of the kind of things that we might be talking about if they're listening in. And this was specifically about writing. And, mm. and when I was talking about writing, maybe this is the the primary school teacher in me, I was thinking about in foundation subjects as well. So, you know, like doing writing in geography, doing writing in mm. history. I, I don't know if people took it that way. They might have just thought it was about English. I don't know. But I put out four um, different um, uh, kind of criteria. And I'm going to read through the, the ones um, that I said. I said uh, confidence, ideas, understand the outcome, and spelling and grammar. So this is that idea of putting pen to paper and a written outcome. So I guess I'm excluding maths here. But but, but that was kind of my, my feeling on it. And they came back and they were all fairly even apart from understand the outcome and that was only at seven percent the rest of them are in mm. in the 30s are coming back um d does that sort of surprise you is there anything you would add to that list that you think are sort of barriers to and i'm saying writing but in my head i'm thinking primary mm. across all subjects I, I'm surprised that outcome isn't higher because, you know, we talk all the time, if you look at any research, that purpose and audience and those things in writing are so important because 
what, what I try to say when I'm teaching about writing to teachers is going, well, you, you never actually, when you're writing an email, you know what the purpose of the email is, or if you're writing a letter or whatever, you know, our, I think there is a tendency that some people have to go, oh, well, I just need to write a diary and a, a very tick box. Exercise. So I, I, but you need to know what the outcome is. You need to know where it's going, who's going to read it, because that then will craft the writing or should craft the writing. So I am surprised that was there. I think ideas is a massive one. And I think that comes down to lots of life experience. And, and many of our children who struggle are because they haven't got those life experiences. It's why I've got a bit of an issue with cold rights. Um, I, I like lukewarm rights where, you know, you do need to do assessment pieces, but actually that ideas bit, we need to give them those ideas. How, how on earth are they going to put onto paper if they've had no experience of things? Um, and I was surprised how high grammar and spelling was. Now, I'm a massive grammar nerd. I love grammar. I've got a master's in grammar as well. Um, and I was surprised how high that was. To me, that's the least important of them all. You know, at the end of the day, if someone can read your writing, that's the main thing. You don't have to have perfect grammar and spelling. And there's no such thing as perfect grammar anyway. So I was surprised, yeah, about the, the arrangement of them, um, to be honest. I'd be interested. I I'd love to dig down into people who didn't choose outcome. I'd love to know why. I, you know, I was equally, it really shocked me. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it's my wording of it, but outcome or you know the, what what you're doing it to make it look like was always often such a you know when I was a, a teacher drilled into me and you know it was of the time when waggles were becoming really popular uh, for, for those of you who don't haven't taught in primary or haven't come across this what a good one looks like so waggle you know and you'd be showing a waggle of it and exemplars maybe we talk about more at secondary now you know and so they they, they know where it, where they're getting to or model answers maybe all of those things was so drilled into me that 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 was something they needed that it really surprised me yeah i i agree and i i think you know modeling is so important and seeing a final product it is so important because for some children they can't envisage the final product and so what happens then is they're just sort of drifting along through the learning journey not really knowing where they're going because for some children you know let's say newspaper writing for example how many children have actually read a newspaper like probably yeah. none um i argue that that genre should go and it should be replaced with like online newspapers because that's what they read they read news online and, and you know they never pick up a paper but actually you know we have to show them an example and i i find it interesting when people are like oh no i can't show them an example of the one we're going to do because they'll just copy it they, they won't copy it i mean if they've got a good enough memory to actually copy it that's quite impressive if you know you're writing for two weeks um so i i never fear about showing them a model i always would because yeah those children need to be able to see what they're doing and, and where the end journey is going to be um now we've talked a little bit about you know uh sort of some of the bits and pieces in the introduction here to talk about you know we talked a little bit about yourself where you've come from your journey um i wanted to kind of set out the stool as well for our listeners obviously if you're listening in if you're listening in live in the podbean app you can text us in you can message so if you have questions if you want to join the conversation you can use that little text feature to, to message the studio live you can also tweet us at TT Radio official, um, and I'll, I'll pick those up and we'll read them out if, if you want to do it that way. You can always call in if you're feeling brave enough. There is a little button and you're listening on your phone. You can click that. You'll be able to call in and join the conversation to kind of ask or share your ideas or share your kind of uh, tips for getting them started. Now, I, I, the last kind of bit that I want to throw before we really start unpicking is in my head, 
and you know maybe this is me maybe this is my um experience uh, lovely there hi um we've got a listener there from uh, iran listening in great to have you with us um and i can see pat's joined us as well um now in my head when i was talking about struggling to get started it mm. was writing okay that, that was that was the bit that i had in my mind and as i expand that I started to think, okay, maybe art as well. I've, you know, I've come across mm. this in a little bit in maths. Do you think there are sort of subjects where this is more likely, you're likely to see that kid frozen, sort of not knowing how to get themselves started? Yeah, oh, definitely. And I think it, it depends what their barriers are. You know, I think there can be an issue in some classes, unfortunately, with some children who don't want to do any work and that can come down to confidence and we'll explore that in a bit but I think that certain subjects have stigmas so mine one was in school was art I hated art in school I can't I laugh in my class because I say I can't draw a stick man with that stencil and I always hated it because I knew that what I was going to produce was so much worse than everyone else's and actually what my teachers didn't do was encourage me or support me I was just getting roused for not starting on time um, and I think, you know, it, there can be issues with maths, for example, you know, if a child has poor basic number skills, they're not going to want to start doing calculations because it's, it's, it's really hard work. You know, if they're still, you know, not able to say use near doubles, for example, doing more complex things is going to be a nightmare. So it's sometimes it's not necessarily the thing they're going to do there. There can be stories around it, you know, gaps they've got, issues that past experiences. And it, it can be quite difficult to unpick sometimes, I think. Why? But certainly, I think, you know, for me, the subject to say it most of all is writing, if I'm honest. You know, it is it is that subject that lots of people struggle with. Um, we've just had a message in there from Pat who's just said, I teach DT and engineering. Some students freeze at first, but I make it problem solving and fun. Uh, fantastic. You know, I really like that as a comment, but also... I agree there, Pat, when it, you know, when I think about particularly in my sort of primary DT and, and we had to do that element where they um, maybe have to do multiple yeah. designs of a product or we say like, OK, you know, we're going to design something. And I think you've touched on it already in about, you know, them maybe not having experience of it. If they've only seen one calculator, us designing six different calculators to choose the best design was always, a you know, an absolute nightmare for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's great, Pat. You know, um, I I enjoyed DT in school actually, and I think for that reason that you were given enough freedom, but within safety confines. You know, you you were given the guidelines, but actually you could go on your own track. And I think sometimes as well, we can be too restrictive for them. Actually, let's get the balance between you know uh, they need to be creative but within some confines and guidelines so we can help them through it. And I think it uh, sounds great, Pat, and um, love to see some of the work you've done. Now, um, I, we did say we were going to really start unpicking this topic because it sounds like a small thing. And then when yeah. I started kind of, you know, trying to pull this apart, it's a, you know, there's a lot to get on with. But before we really get into it, it is time for a quick shout out to uh, one of our sponsors who are great, uh, a great organisation, John Cat Education, who produce educational books. We're just going to hear a little from them before we start. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? 
Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show here on Teachers Talk Radio. Uh, with me, Nathan Ginn, I'm joined by Ian Timbrell, uh, teacher, deputy head, consultant. We're talking about getting them to start. What do you do when they just won't work? And we're talking specifically that kind of first moment of freezing, um, you know, as one of our listeners has said, uh, you know, when the task is put in front of them, that paper is there, the blank sheet, and they're looking at it. Um, uh, Ian, I should say as well, having a you know someone who um, understands Welsh, I, I, you haven't yet corrected me on saying Boradar um, sort of every time in my introduction. I do apologise. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to say. I was like, <laughs> um, <laughs> Noswaitha. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things when people are learning Welsh very much. You know, there's it's knowing when to correct, isn't it? Because I, I, so I'm partially fluent but my son is fluent my son goes to welsh medium school so he speaks welsh all day and he loves correcting me i have to say he loves telling me when i'm doing it wrong i do you know what it, it, every time when, when i get to speak to someone from wales who has an understanding of the welsh language and and i kind of go look at it's the most known one like you know like yeah. I, I could i could use the correct one for the time of day but it's the most known one and so like we'll go with that for now but it's it's my my touch to curriculum gumraig that i you know i'm still trying to push <laughs> out there um and um yeah very exciting so your son goes to a, a, a welsh language school then did you say he doesn't yeah yeah he um so his other dad is fluent welsh and went to welsh school and and when we adopted him we very much made that decision that we wanted him to go to welsh medium and it, it's fascinating you know the, this child started school at age three with no welsh words and within about three or four weeks of coming home and able to have conversations it's it's an absolute incredible thing um, does that leave you out sometimes? Do they, you know, sort of have their own world conversation? Are you are you able to keep up? Um, I uh, no, that's the that's the, <laughs> that's the quick answer. I went to Welsh lessons um, while when he started school, and I, oh, I it used to frustrate me because it would take me like three weeks to get remember some words or phrases, and he was picking up new words every day. You know, the plasticity of a young brain, and um, it was. It, it is hard sometimes and I, I can have conversations and things, but yes, yeah, sometimes like if I'm watching Welsh language TV, I have to have the subtitles on because I can't follow quick enough. Um, yeah. And I think I think sometimes he does enjoy that. I don't understand, you know, it's a nine year old getting to the age now where I'm sure he's going to be talking about me in Welsh. You no, know, when I can't understand certain things. Oh, yeah, just under his breath. Just a couple. Oh, yeah little welsh words now i you know i'm lucky enough to have two sons myself and i when i moved to uh, back to south wales um i have one who um learned to speak in england and has my accent a kind of southern english kind of estuary accent but mm. then my youngest son who has, has learned to speak here has got a you know a proper welsh accent and i keep saying if i can get him on a rugby team i'm gonna get him on rugby teams and then i'm gonna have one play for england one play for wales <laughs> If there's a World Cup Ooh. final I can get him into, then I yeah. think there's film rights 
I, th- I think I can get film rights for that and I will be a, a rich and happy and proud father with Definitely. one Welsh, one English sort of head to head. Right. Anyway, we digress. Sorry. <laughs> we we di- digressing a little bit, talking about children. We were talking about getting them to start, getting them to start learning pencil to paper, all of those things. Um, and I wanted to ask, first of all, you know, in my wording, when I phrased it, of getting work out of the, my classes like pulling teeth, and you've kind of already picked up on this. We're going to start off with the the, the smallest aspect, I guess, or what seems small, which is um, the work they're doing and talking about sort of that idea of task completion. And mm. is it the same as learning? What's your take on that? I um, refer to that sort of task completion as doing stuff. So are they just doing stuff or are they learning? You know, it's that big difference between, say, for example, now if we're talking about speaking and listening, are they just doing speaking and listening or are they learning how to speak and listen? And I think certainly I think uh, when people start their career, some people I think find it difficult to distinguish between the two. But I suppose the answer comes is what, what have you imparted on them? A knowledge or skills or anything else? What, what have they learnt about that skill that you're doing? Um, and I think the task completion, we have to be really careful there that we're not just ticking boxes. You know, if they're if there's no purpose to it, why are we doing it? And I know, you know, we are obviously restricted by the national curricula, but, and it is really interesting to see the difference in England and Wales. Now, they're so different, the curricula. And I do worry that the curriculum can become a tick box exercise. And actually, we're not worrying about them learning stuff. We've just got to cover everything. I think we have to be careful of that because we only have a finite time with these children and we need to make every opportunity for learning that we can. And, you know, and I think it's interesting you mentioned the England and the Wales thing there. You know, I, I, I spent a large part of my teaching career over in England. Um, I, I trained in Wales, but, but, but moved over there to teach. Um, and um, there was an idea at the time, you know, and some of this came from lesson observations. Some of it, I think, from people, you know, like Ofsted, wanting to see progress within an hour slot, that there had to be an output from a lesson like something Mm. had to be produced there had to be something in their book and I remember at times being told that you know in their books even if you weren't doing any writing they still had to write the date and the learning objective because they were so focused on this idea that that there was a proof and I, I, I think is it a bold choice then or is it a tough choice you mentioned young teachers to say actually this lesson nothing's going in the book maybe and I think yeah that is down to school culture and school policy isn't it And I think that stems from a culture of inspection and evidence and accountability. Um, And at the end of the day, who are we doing it for? We're not doing school for Estin or Ofsted. We're doing school for the children. So actually, what's more beneficial for them? And there's so many ways of collecting. If you have to collect evidence, there's so many ways to do it now. You don't need to put it in a book. You know, you've got online apps and um, photos, videos, things like that. And also your planning, like your planning should show what you're going to do anyway. And I find the best way to find out what's going on in the class is not by looking at the book, it's to ask the children because they'll they'll tell you, they'll tell you how it went, won't they? Um, and I and they always will give their the the. the brutal opinion certainly in primary school I find they're brutal about their opinion about lessons and I think we do have to move away from that culture of paper-based accountability um you know as teachers we don't write everything down so why should the children have to write everything down no um and uh, you know I find this idea of the that 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 task completion output that um measurement 
kind of uh, stakes that we're looking at, you know, that we need to get something done or a worksheet that needs to be, and again, you know, I'm falling into the phrasing that, you know, there's a worksheet that needs to be completed, somehow raises the level of stress for the teacher, maybe blinding us sometimes. I, you know, I don't know what you think about that. You know, the, the pressure on yourself of I've made this sheet, I need them to do all of the answers on this sheet. You're, you're not yeah. doing it yet, you know. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I hate worksheets. I think they have their place. But I think sometimes, yeah, we can we can almost pre we're going to be careful about preempting what we want them to learn because actually we don't always know how a lesson's going to go and making it more open-ended almost gets rid of that stress. You know, if when if we are going to make it more open-ended, providing them with tools and scaffold and need to do tasks, but worksheets can yeah, be very can be limiting for the children, but yeah, as as you said, you know, it can be stressful for the teacher. Now, you've already touched on another aspect that I wanted to unpick about the work itself, you know, the task mm. design. We've talked a little bit about worksheets and maybe that openness or the, the pressure of having to get something in books. But one of the um, possible barriers suggested from that list that we discussed a little bit earlier was by um, a, a Twitter user, Mr. Um, ICT, Mr. P, um, you know. He's famous. Google him. You know, you, you'll find him. I, I got his username wrong there, but I don't know why. Um, but he said um, purpose should be on the list. And you've already mentioned purpose yeah. and them understanding it as part of that kind of understanding the outcome. Does it help to have a purpose? Well, I would ask teachers. I would go, right, I'm going to come into your school and I'm going to do staff training. If I don't start off with the purpose and the reason behind that, you'll switch off straight away because you'll be like, you know, I have loads to do. If you don't tell me why I'm sat here doing these things, I'm not going to pay attention and do it. And yet we expect children just to go along with everything we say. You know, as adults, we don't. If we don't, if we don't really care about something because we don't see the point in it, we don't put full effort into it. We wouldn't. Um, it's, it's actually absolute human nature. And at the end of the day, children are little humans. And I think if we don't share the purpose behind it, then they're going to switch off as well because they don't see the point. They're just going to be, yeah, all right, well, I'll just do what I have to do and that's it. And, and purpose, I think, get, sometimes we think of purpose as, as a, it has to be sharing with someone or something like that. But it can be as simple as, right, we're going to do, we need to look at, I don't know, um, making numbers 10 times bigger and smaller because next week we're going to be looking at converting units of measurement for this project. You know, it does, a purpose can be just linking to other learning, but those children then get why they're doing that activity. And then, and then we're all the same. We want to know why we're doing stuff because we're all busy and we all want to make sure that what we're doing is, has got a point to it. I mean, I found that really interesting. There's a part you pulled out there, you know, I want to ask about sort of a little bit more about that, you know, having to share it with people, which I, you know, I, I was never a fan of, I think as a motivating me as a young learner, I, I probably didn't want it. If you told me that my work was being, you know, I had to write this letter because I was sending it to, um, a, a, you know, a, a local MP or something. Actually, I think that would make me freeze up even more. Mm. But also, and, and this is kind of maybe more of a primary thing than we, we see at secondary. But sometimes because we have to have a purpose, primary schools make up a purpose or a fake purpose yeah or you know so how where do you see that sitting because for me I, I don't mind it in the younger years a fake purpose you know like Goldilocks might come in and knock over their classroom mm. but when we're forcing the purpose and maybe that's the right word rather than fake fake purpose is that going to actually motivating for them or is it are we tricking ourselves yeah, and I, I think that's it. And I, I've struggled with this myself in my classroom over the years. I'm sure lots of people have when, particularly, 
I, I think there's no problem, as you said, you know, like a Goldilocks purpose, laughing about it children. Those children know it's not real. And I'd argue, is that a purpose? I'm not, I'm not really sure if, if it is a false purpose or a forced purpose. Is it actually a, a purpose? But I often, um, you know, if I do letter writing, for example, I'll say to the children, you know, I'm going to choose one or two to send because, you know, say, for example, writing to an MP, can't she's not going to read the local MP is not going to read 30 and some children will that relaxes them because they know that as you said theirs aren't going to go but the other children will then who are into it will actually work really hard to try and get it sent and I I don't think there is I've never seen anyway anyone who's cracked this properly because I think to come up with an authentic purpose for every single lesson you do I don't think is possible um because otherwise you'd be sending things off left, right and centre to everyone. Um, I, and another thing you mentioned there, you know, um, that I wanted to pick up on was that the, um, you talked about almost like the purpose being part of the learning journey yeah. itself. The purpose is the learning is the purpose. The, the goal here is to to get better at something when you when you're framing learning, then do do you frame it for the learners that, you know, the, the the purpose is the journey. The purpose is to get better at it as opposed to, and I'm trying to think of a way to word this in that, that same vein as, you know, completing a worksheet because we've got to complete the task compared to learning. Is that what we're looking for in a purpose then? I think you just got to do what works for the individual. Thing. I think we, we like in education to put lots of rules about how we should do things. But actually, I think if we if we empower our teachers to use their professional judgment, they can use their judgment about, you know what, this week it is going to be a genuine purpose where we're actually going to send it to someone or we're going to read our story to someone else. But actually, I think it is just as valid sometimes just to go, do you know what, you all need to know how to write a letter because one day you'll be doing a letter of application. We need to learn how to write a letter. That's why we're doing this. I think we need to have that flexibility as teachers um, and do what's best for that individual journey. Um, now, you know... As we pick apart this idea of maybe the work's the problem, you know, I'm saying um, getting work out of my class is like pulling teeth. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're listening in, and as I say, you know, if you want to join the chat, the text boxes are there. You can text us in live in the Podbean app. You can tweet us at TT Radio um, Official on Twitter. Uh, and you can, of course, follow us on uh, Instagram and uh, all of the other ones. Um, but... <sighs> we're pulling apart the idea of the work. And so you have some work that just needs to be done. Okay. At this point, you know, an assessment piece, maybe it's some shared planning that you've been given and you, do, you know, you've got to do it. And when you look at the task then, okay. So you've come in, maybe, you know, maybe as a deputy head, you know, you, you've been in to cover a class or something. Um, what are the red flags for you when you're looking at the task itself or the lesson that the children are going to stall or struggle with with what you've got in front of you. Um, I think for me, uh, learning journey it, it does not get enough focus. You know that that journey working backwards and the way I was your training is start at the end. Right, where do you want to go? Let's build it backwards and have those children being given all of the knowledge, skills, tools, and confidence that they need to be able to do the last task. And I think where I see it going wrong at the very beginning is where the teacher has worked from the beginning 
to the end. And actually some of those lessons are totally irrelevant. They don't matter. You could take them out and they'd still produce the same thing at the end. And I, I, that's how I generally write my writing journey is I look at every single lesson and go, if I took this lesson out, would their writing be any worse? If the answer is no, it wouldn't change, take the lesson out, don't do it. Because if you don't see the point of doing it, the children won't either. And so something I look at straight away is, does that, that teacher know where they're going with this? So they got a clear idea of where they're going to the end product. Um, and so, you know, it, when we talk about that, you know, we're talking about this, this, this learning journey as a whole. And is it that that then, you know, when we hit these stalling moments that we haven't thought about, a, you know, a sort of a progression of steps? Is it supposed to be sort of incremental for you that, you know, you can do this little bit, now we're doing it a little bit harder? How incrementally do you build your lessons? Um, or, you know, you said you already don't like a cold right. Yeah, I, I, I despise a cold right simply because I think it penalises so many children who don't have life experiences. I absolutely understand the need to assess where they actually are. But if you think of, uh, for example, how we write in real life, like, for example, when you emailed me, you don't just sit down and, and not think about it at all and then just write. You, you think about it. You might make some notes or you go back to it. You edit it. And things like that. And so I, my worry about a complete cold write with no input, no stimulus, no support is that it's not reflective of real life writing. Um, so like what I like to do is something, say, for instance, I need to do a cold, uh, uh, an assessment piece. We'll do some drama around it first. We'll, you know, we'll talk about it. So they've got those ideas. Once they write, they're on their own. You know, then I'm not going to give them word mats or sentence starters or anything. I need to know where they are. But I think adding that context to the beginning can help them uh, and it can help them picture in their head actually where they're going as well you know that that journey of learning is so important uh, and I'm guessing then you would advise this across sort of all subjects across designing technologies we've mentioned before across you know um, art um, the, the, you're starting with those kind of incremental skills exploring understanding seeing mm. examples before going into it yourself and I think because again it's reflecting real life and you know, if, uh, for example, us learning Welsh, you know, you don't you don't go to the most complex sentences straight away. You start incrementally with small piece, small set everyday sentences with everyday vocabulary and you gradually build up because there's so much research out there about memory. And, you know, you you don't remember things straight away. You have to keep revisiting. And also your brain makes connections between things. We have to make those connections. So actually my lesson three should connect to lesson two and one, but should also connect to the lessons afterwards because that's how your brain learns. Children are exactly the same. They make, they make connections between things that they know. And so we've got to think through that really carefully. Um, so, you know, we've talked about uh, the work, if I'm saying the, you know, getting work out of my class is is like pulling teeth. Mm. Um, you know, when I've, I've sort of staged our questions to think about the work and the class, we've talked yeah. a lot about the work. Do you think that, you know, if you would, is, would you be looking first at the work or would you be looking first at the learners if someone raised that as a problem for you? learners immediately because they to me they tell you everything um 
you know, they tell you whether they're engaged, they tell you whether they understand. Because sometimes when you look at the work, you don't really know what input, what support, what scaffolding they've had. You find that stuff out by talking to the children, how they found it, and you can ask them questions about it. And I, I generally do them both at the same time, really. I like to talk to children with their work because I think that's easier for them as well, isn't it? You know, if they, they've got the work in front of them, they can refer to it. But it's them I want to know about. Because at the end of the day, the books... The books aren't the things that are learning. The books are a tool to learn or the piece of work or something you've built. It's the child that, that we need to look at to, to find out actually, are these lessons successful? So you're possibly suggesting then that, you know, myself as a teacher, so, you know, I've had a terrible lesson today where, mm. I, you know, they, they, they just couldn't put pen to paper. They didn't understand it. But potentially then I could go into school tomorrow and, and sit with the child and just mm. talk to them about it. Oh, I, oh my God, I've done it. And, and they're hilarious what they come up with. Um, and it is, it takes a lot of confidence and I absolutely understand people new to teaching. And some people experienced teachers might find it difficult because you don't know what they're going to come out with. But I, if you don't know what's gone wrong with it, why not ask the kids? You know, if, if say for example, an employee wasn't working the first thing that you do is talk to them you know that's that's what we do isn't it if someone can't do something we talk to them to find out more let's do that to the children and actually how much agency does that give the children because if they're you know they're having a direct input into the, the teaching um in their classroom i think that's really powerful um, um you know since we're talking about the, the the young people that we're working with at the moment it's a good point for us to sort of transition from from the work itself to um, the class and, and thinking about the class and you know one of the things I was conscious of when, when framing this uh, qu sort of question or phrase of you know um, getting work out of my classes like pulling teeth um, is it is um, negative towards the class you know certainly um, and, and we're all allowed to gripe we're all allowed to you know have have our moments you know in the staff room where we can have a gripe and a whinge and everything but I wanted to ask you about sort of classroom culture and some of those things and, and and whether that can affect when we're thinking about the class um can, can that affect sort of the work output for want of a better word oh definitely and i think you i'm sure we've all seen it where a class transitions to a new teacher and perhaps they were incredibly successful the year before and suddenly this class aren't doing work or the other way around you know you've got a class who haven't been producing the work you'd expect and then all of a sudden they've got a new teacher and they are and 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 classroom culture is so important is you know it's that and because you have this overall school culture but every teacher is responsible for their culture in their classroom and the and the children's attitudes towards their learning i think it's so important and it really can make the difference between some children you'll have some children who'll always do the work you'll have um uh, children who have a work ethic that they will always do it. But if you've got borderline children and your culture in a classroom isn't right, it's when it can tip them over the edge to go, and I'm not doing that. Um, so, you know, when you talk about sort of classroom culture when in your head, because I, th I think this can sometimes go two ways, because some people might be hearing that and, and sort of thinking, right, it's, you know, a, a disciplined culture of, you know, you get it done. Or are we talking about a, a supportive culture of mistakes are OK? I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, mistakes, we all make mistakes. And I certainly, I remember being an NQT thinking I had to be perfect at everything. Um, and I'll never forget one of my first lessons I taught and I was doing Welsh and I was teaching the seasons and I did the wrong months. And I was so terrified about it when I realised afterwards that I'd put the wrong months into the seasons in Welsh because I, I hadn't learnt the, 
thing properly. Actually, I I didn't know what to do because I was like, I've done that lesson now. And then one of my more senior teachers in school said, just tell him, laugh about them, joke with them. And I was terrified. I was really scared about telling them. And I went in the next day, I went, right, remember that task we did yesterday? So we did that all wrong and the class just erupted into laughter and we did it again. And that was a returning point in my career. I was going, actually, let's laugh about our mistakes. You know, if I put a model text on the board and I made a mistake, I say to them, right, find the mistake. Come on, I've done it again. Because um, you are, we are all fallible and, and children shouldn't see you as these perfect beings because that doesn't give a model for learning themselves. They need to understand that making mistakes is fine. We all do it. Um, and the, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, and I, I guess this is quite a, a big question of, uh, you know, in, in itself, was about sort of what motivates th- those pupils to learn, you know, and, and so do the work and, and whether they need to be motivated by us or whether they need to have that already. How, how do you see motivating students, pupils as working? And I think this is where, what do we mean by motivation? I think it can be very easily confused with just getting them to complete the work. If I, and one of my pet hates is when, for example, you have a child who's reluctant to work and you're doing things like a reward chart, I don't know, where they get sweets at the end. That's not motivation, that's bribery. And I can see why people do it, but actually what we're not unpicking there is why hasn't the child started in in the first place? Um, Because the motivation needs to come from inside, it needs to come from you. I um, I think it's, we can encourage them and give them the tools as much possible, but that motivation has to come from them. They, They have to want to learn and want to do it. And so what we need to do is look at them as little individuals, work out what the barriers are, look at our learning journey, our purpose, and the excitement around that learning. We can create all those conditions so that they can motivate themselves. Um, and, you know, you talk about the, the unique uh, individuals there, you know, um, so we've got specific pupils within them. And I know I've already, you know, sort of been picked up on the, the phrasing of the question that, you know, my whole class aren't, <laughs> aren't doing the work. But, you know, are there going to be groups of in, or individuals um, who, who we need to be more aware of? when getting started with their work yeah i think we're becoming more and more aware particularly of newer diversity um so my son has got add um and is one of the classic cases of doesn't want to do work um because he's very much on his own agenda and it's that and i remember it, it, there was a time when he was blackmailed by a bribe by food you know sweets were given at the end of the day for do your work but it, it, his engagement and, and motivation didn't improve over time because all he did then was going, actually, I'm not even going to do the work if I get sweets at the end. And so we need to look at neurodiversity, children with ADD, ADHD, ASD, all of these neurodiverse things. Those groups are very vulnerable to change. And we need to really know them really well. Know your children in depth. And I always say that to new teachers. You've got to know these children more. And then, of course, you've got other children who have maybe or are looked after or the domestic violence and actually they, they don't want to be in school because they're worried about what's going on at home while they're not there you know these these poor kids it's like that's going to work isn't it you know if you have a relationship breakdown something awful happens at home you don't focus in the day properly and so children are exactly the same we need to keep an eye and i think the other ones that often are forgot about is our high achievers i really do think that they're often forgotten about because actually for them 
what is their motivation for learning? And actually, are they pushing themselves? Are they motivated to do the bare minimum or are they motivated to actually challenge themselves? I think we need to look at them all. I think it's, you know, it's a big ask, but I think particularly those vulnerable and those more ables are the ones where we've got to be very careful about that, how we motivate them and, and what their motivation is. Um, and, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how we see it as sort of um, writing, particularly we might see or output that is in a written format that we might see um, some of this going because, you know, I've sort of mentioned that I, I, th- I think it applies to artistic work as well. Mm. Um, do you think there is anything that can be done to jumpstart you know how, how do we get that first mark on the page mm. and i think don't don't it's not about the getting the mark on the page i think for me if i've had i've had these children over the years and the first thing is getting to know that child actually i, I if they if, if they've got incredibly complex issues going on and they've come to school and they sat down that's step one let's do that let's get to know them and then working out those getting to know them so you can work out what are their barriers and actually rather than tackling the end product what we need to do is tackle the other things first so you know we talked earlier about grammar and spelling was an interesting one you know a child may have for example dyslexia who's terrified of putting pen to paper so we don't tackle the writing what we do is give them the strategies they need to one maybe improve the spellings but also to realize it's not the end of the world if you make a mistake let's tackle that and actually putting pen to paper should come on its own because they won't be afraid anymore so i think yeah be careful about going straight to the end product fantastic now you know we are going to stop now for the news um when we come back we're going to continue unpicking this we'll see you all on the other side now ian i should just double check do you know how to mute yourself do you know what? I don't. And I feel really bad because my username, for some reason, is RQFPUGRB because I did not oh, realise that it wasn't registered on the app. That that happens all <laughs> of the time. And, and I I have to preemptively. So when you first joined, there is like um, a, uh, you know, like a kind of nervousness in me going, I think it is. I've let someone in. <laughs> you know, it's like letting someone in who's wearing their hood zipped up and a, 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 yeah. their hat pulled down um, and coming in with a different username don't worry what i can do is i'll i can mute you from uh, from my end and, and you're happy to stick around through the news uh, and we'll see you on the other side because there's lots more questions i want to ask okay absolutely thank you nathan we'll see you on the other side of the news guys this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational a leading publisher of books directories educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the uk and beyond have you checked out their latest releases don't miss out visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today happy reading This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Christian Institute website carries a story on the reminder by Minister of State for Schools, Nick Gibb, that schools in England have a duty to remain politically impartial in their teaching and extracurricular activities. The guidance was published last year. But Mr Gibb was responding to MP Miriam Cates' references to a YouGov poll, which appears to reveal that the majority of UK children are being taught political ideology as fact. And he issued the reminder. 
Miss Cates was referencing a view that children are being taught that they can be born in the wrong body, as well as resources being used in schools which focus on the topic of gender identity. The DfE guidance comes as Scotland attempts to introduce new legislation on gender recognition, which is opposed by Westminster. The guidance states that schools should not under any circumstances work with or use materials produced by external agencies that take extreme political positions. The Varsity website reports on findings by a right-wing think tank that elite universities were more likely to use progressive terminology on their websites. Cambridge tops the table in the Radical Progressive University Guide, although the think tank Civitas does not appear to see this as a positive. Varsity highlights comments reported in the Daily Mail, which warned that half of our universities peddle their woke agenda to students. The think tank generated the findings after exploring university websites and news reports, looking for a series of key phrases including trigger warning, white privilege and anti-racism. Those with high incidences of key phrases were at the top of the table. Varsity acknowledges a view that Cambridge's political culture is to the left of the national one, but also highlights key figures in academia who fe feature prominently in the conservative press. It's hard to stay away from politics as announcements of strikes continued late last week. The TES reports on the continued deadlock in Scotland, whilst the Evening Standard covers talks between ministers and unions in England after the NEU confirmed strike dates for the coming weeks and months. These strikes are set to impact schools in England and Wales, although the BBC further reports on talks in Wales. Its news website reports that teachers and school leaders have been offered a one-off payment by the Welsh Government, similar to that offered to health workers, although unions have already said that the offer is not enough. Scottish media outlets have also carried a story about what it describes as fears about violence in schools. A clip now widely shared on social media shows an altercation between two students and that took place on the same day a male pupil was left unconscious following an assault. Whilst Police Scotland have said it's investigating both incidents, it has sparked debate on the state of behaviour in schools, particularly as such incidents have featured in headlines before. The Scottish Government has previously stated they're investing an additional £15 million this year to enhance capacity to effectively meet the needs of young people, and that they were very clear that violence is unacceptable. In further political news, the petition put forward by three men known as the Three Dads Walking will go to Parliament. The men who all lost daughters to suicide want to get suicide prevention on the school curriculum. The petition they set up now has more than 155,000 signatures, which means that it will be discussed in Parliament after previously failing to be heard. Finally, more than 20,000 defibrillators will be sent to almost 18,000 state-funded schools by the end of the academic year. It comes after the government committed to ensuring there was a device in every school last year. The rollout comes after campaigning from the Oliver King Foundation and its founder Mark King, whose son died at 12 from a cardiac arrest while swimming at school. Guidance to support schools has been created, including awareness videos, and Education Secretary Gillian Keegan praised the work of the Oliver King Foundation and described the rollout as a huge milestone. Mr King stated, defibrillators save lives 
and that he hoped that families do not have to suffer the heartbreak of unnecessarily losing a child. This is for our Ollie. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, a while ago I asked you what is your go-to piece of tech? This week I had the pleasure of talking to Ian Kenyon, CEO of Wirral Respite and Alternative Provision, also known as RAP for short. So, Ian, what is your go-to piece of tech in your setting? Thanks, Steve. In our organisation, we are absolutely embedded in sharing our information and our data via the cloud. And there's loads of software out there to do it. And there's a lot of bespoke software for our type of organisation, student information management services, uh, the likes of Sims or Arbor or, or, or things like that. But unfortunately, they're all built around big organisations, big schools, uh, schools with up to 1,200 students. Certainly not for schools that have a turnaround of students uh, who are completing courses in 12 weeks and those students who are potentially returning but require new files. We've tried proprietary software. It's very, very expensive. But actually what we've fallen back to is what Google provides. Uh, Using G Suite, which is now Google Workplace, we have access to spreadsheets, to um, form-filling software for for data collection, Uh, Google Docs, which is, you're very familiar with everything via traditional Microsoft offices. Being able to link Docs uh, and Sheets and Forms together has been almost transformational for our organization. It's not the cheapest. Uh, I will say the per user price matches uh, what other software like Zoho or or Microsoft will do, um, but offers a simpler version for us um, and offers us some interactivity that we've never had before. It handles our email, it handles our our student information, so gathering attendance, it handles our finance, uh, so invoicing. Um, the, the, The way that the suite works, the way that the package works, just works really well for us. But with very little additional investment in time, effort and training, um, Google offers us everything that we need. The final sort of element that, that has been transformational for us is then being able to use proprietary hardware such as Chromebooks or even Android phones and the ability for us to then transfer our data and, and to, to be live in the cloud at all times has been uh, a really good thing for our organisation. So there you have it, my number one go-to. It's definitely got to be Google Workplace. Thank you, Ian. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Do you have a go-to piece of tech? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show with me, uh, Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, tonight I'm joined by Ian Timbrell, he's teacher, deputy head and consultant. Um, we're talking about getting them to start, what to do 
when they just won't work. Um, you know, we've started with this phrase of, um, you know, getting work out of my class is like pulling teeth. And um, we've discussed a lot of things. We've discussed about the, the task design, the learning journey design. We've discussed the, the students in particular, their motivation. We've talked about um, uh, some of the barriers that they might have personally um, to, to their learning that the, the stops them at that moment of, of, of getting started with a task which is how I frame this although we've we've moved on to talking about learning in general now I'm just going to check Ian's back with us Ian you still there yep they're here fantastic yeah always a bit of a panic for me after news. <laughs> I like to, you know just check that you know have they gone are they still off making a cup of tea I don't know you know like have we still got them uh, with us um so I one of the things that I wanted to talk about and you've kind of touched on as you know young people being a little bit like uh, like little adults little little human beings um and I wanted to pull something from an adult kind of place uh, about obstacles to productivity as they call it you know when we think in the workplace maybe you're sat at your computer to plan some lessons we'd be talking about productivity and for our young people it's sat in their workspaces about to start some learning you know we, we can see maybe some links and some barriers so this is linked on an article put out by psychologytoday.com an american organization um who, who are talking about obstacles to productivity for adults um, and I kind of wanted to use it as a mirror or a lens for us to reflect on our pupils um, and it starts with an interesting uh, kind of uh, phrase and I'm going to read that out it, it says in a culture that glorifies hyper productivity and always being on uh, feeling unproductive even temporarily can trigger intense anxiety stress or shame so the question i wanted to ask on the base of that is do you think us as teachers and, and that we're putting on to maybe our, our, our students through our lessons that we're, we're too focused on whether that be output or progress or measurable learning in lesson time oh, i think absolutely and i think you know i remember starting teaching the the accountability that we have in many areas now promotes that of we have to get so much out of these poor children and we know that you know across the country that children coming into schools are now a lower literacy and numeracy rate than ever been and yet we're expected to get them to the same place at the end and I think it can it can quickly schools can quickly fall into the trap of that means I've got to do more stuff and for some children if not all it's exhausting um, and I know like when my I read a really good article a while ago about um, ADHD children and when she picks her daughter up from school they sit in silence for the car journey and they're not allowed to talk about school and I tried it with my son and it was really interesting how he would just sit there silently because he was obviously exhausted from the day and then when he wanted to then he would tell me about his day whereas what I used to do was interrogate him about his day because but he needed time to process that and I do wonder in school day are we giving them time to process what they've done? Are we giving them time to relax? Are we giving them time to actually sort of get rid of that anxiety and stress? Or are we on this total hamster wheel where these poor children are churning out thing after thing after thing? Um, and, it, you know, and I think it is interesting. We're talking sort of both, both of us somewhat from a Welsh perspective, although, um, you know, I, I have recently, my, my son who has started school here 
in Wales and myself as a, a primary school teacher in England for most of my career, um, where there is uh, maybe e- even more pressure, I would say, at, mm. uh, lower ages, younger down in the school. So my son, uh, you know, currently in year one, and in my head as as a teacher, because I, I you know, I should know where he should be. And, and in fact, people will say those phrases to me about knowing where he should be. But I'm thinking, you know, phonics check, I've got, you know, all of these sounds that he has to know all of them, because, you know, he has to get, um, you know, he, he has to get a, a certain pass score to be on track. So I have to have to cram these things into him. Um, and I had a real struggle at the start with that mentality, both as a parent, but also in a different educational system now, where I was, you know, trying to force that learning in, into him. And I'm not sure if that's helpful. Mm, Yeah. And I think homework is, to be honest, homework is one of my biggest bugbears. I think it should be banned in primary schools because study after study shows it doesn't work. It doesn't add impact. And, And actually, when I come home, I want to spend quality time with my son. You know, I've been working all day as well. Um, I want to be enjoying there are only children once I mean you know he's nine minors now he's coming to that age where he's not going to want to know me in a couple of years and so actually I want to enjoy the time I've got with him I don't want to be sitting doing spelling sheets and things like that Um, and so many studies show it doesn't work anyway but I absolutely agree I mean you know England and Wales have very different accountability systems and it's going to be interesting in a couple of years to see how because how it changes you know we don't have sats here um, at all there's no national data collected at all anymore um, the onus is very much on the school so it's very very different to England where you know with all of the the grammar and spag tests and all that the amount of accountability in England has gone up I'd say in the last 10 years I mean correct me if I'm wrong but whereas Wales it's gone down and I do find that it'll be interesting to look in another 10 years time and see where we are well one of the things that really interests me about that at the, at the moment and you know you, you, you might know more about this than me or, or have opinions on it is the idea of um, reading ages I was looking to, into at the mm-hmm. moment and there is a suggestion that you know um, because you know obviously people will ask me particularly about my son you know like his reading and I read with him every night but is is he doing all right so in my head, I know that in the English system, potentially I would be worried as a teacher. Or I would be trying to put things in place to force that uh, progress on. You know, I, I, I would be saying things or doing interventions at school and forcing them on. Now, when I'm not so worried here and his teachers tell me that, it, you know, it, it, it is fine. The journey he is on, that, that, that's the right journey for him and it, it's, it's not to worry about. So my question would be, you know, on this split somewhat between England and Wales is, do we, is it possible for us to have reading ages uh, in that sense? Because potentially uh, my child is on a very different journey to the one that he would be on in England. And uh, reading ages are really interesting and you have to be incredibly careful with reading ages because actually what do reading ages test? There is no test to measure reading comprehensively. You know, even um, Crispin Chatterton, who's the director of GL Assessment, said that actually you shouldn't be using them in isolation because they only tell you a certain part. We can't test certain areas of reading. It's so difficult to test inference and deduction and prediction and things like that. I think we have to be very careful with all of these data that we, we really understand what the purpose of it is. You know, we should also be talking to the children about their reading and reading with them 
and get a rounded picture. It does make it difficult when they're transferring schools. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, particularly I wonder now, you know, say for instance, a child moves into England from Wales, they're not necessarily going to have data going with them. It'll be very narrative unless that school has done tests themselves. So I do think, yeah, it's going to be when those moves start to happen, which they're going to more and more, actually, how will schools be able to track progress and be able to know where that child is straight away? Yeah, you know, I find it really interesting because potentially, you know, we could be looking at the same thing with countries, uh, you know, such as Finland, for example, where they, they start school later you know mm. how does uh, those parts interest me about you know where we start putting pressure on where we yeah. start panicking about output and work and and all of those things because they can happen depending on your the culture that you you're in the the yeah. education system they could be at different points and certainly in England there has been a shift that that pressure and that stress about getting through all of the learning for uh, you know, a defined national testing point is certainly higher, I would say. Definitely. And I do think we need to be careful about comparing to countries like Finland. So um, I, I was part of a group that helped um, design the new Welsh curriculum. And we looked at the research and, it, you know, it's wonderful. You know, the school, children start at seven. What people don't really, uh, what they don't often talk about is the fact that yes, they don't start school till seven, but when they start school, generally most children can read and write because they're taught at home because that is the culture of Finland. Mm. And so, but we don't necessarily have that culture. Certainly schools that I've worked in in the past, those children would come to school at age seven, not be able to read or write possibly at all. You know, when we do look at other countries, you have to take it with a pinch of salt because it's not the same place. It's not the same culture. Um, our whole parental attitudes would have to change if we were to, say, start school at seven. It, it couldn't just be, oh, great, they'll start at seven now. They're going to be better learners because that, that's not our culture. Yeah. Um, now, another thing that came up in this article, and I should say for our listeners, because we, we you know, delving deep into some of these things, we're talking about comparing uh, an article from psychologytoday.com about obstacles to productivity, but throwing that through a lens of, you know, how, how that would look for students in school. And, and another thing that they come up with is procrastination. <laughs> now, do you think students in school are procrastinating? If they are, what are they putting off? And, and why? I think we all are, aren't we? We all have a bit of procrastination. Um, I mean, when cause I, I left school, uh, well, I, um, just, after, just before Christmas, and I was like, oh, well, I can't start doing my work yet because my office isn't done. I could. I had a table, but I had to do my office first. But then Ikea didn't have the furniture I needed, so I then had to wait until that was done. Um, and then I had to organise it. Honestly, I, I came up with so many reasons not to start work. Um and I think children are exactly the same. Children are very savvy and they will do anything they can do generally to delay the start of tasks. Um, and it's totally normal. Again, you know, they're little people and they, if they can delay doing something they don't want to do, of course they're going to do it. That might be going to the toilet. That might be asking a question. That might be just staring at you until you tell them to start working. And I think, you know, it's about just realizing that they are people at the end of the day and, and procrastination is something that comes to us all naturally there's no one who doesn't procrastinate with certain things and we have to accept that in children as well 
Uh, do you think that ties into maybe the, the the pieces that you said there about kind of the 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 pressure, the assessment, and those things that we we don't have time to accept the normality of not being a hundred percent all of the time in yeah. every single lesson. And I think you know I would say that from secondary. May, I don't think it's the mm. same in primary because you maybe have more breathing space to have ups and downs. But I, I imagine a secondary school now, particularly in, in in some schools, where you have to be you know. You, you walk into the class and from that second, the teachers have been told, so do it now task. You've got to get the books out as quickly as possible. Learning, learning, learning. Go to the bell. You know, you've got to teach all of that time. But to do that five hours a day must be incredibly hard. Well, you know, and um, we are in a critical time in education. We've got a huge retention crisis. Um, we've got, um, you know, so many teachers, mental health problems and, it's no wonder in some sense I can only imagine. And I think pe- schools can go into panic mode. You know, your levels are down one year, so everyone's got to work harder. Whereas actually, rather than doing that, unpick why they went down. What was the reason behind it? Doing more work isn't necessarily going to make things better. Because if the learning isn't right first, doing more ineffective learning isn't going to make the learning better. So I think we need to very much, it's the why question. What, what, you know, and, and then we need to learn about learning. And actually, loads of learning shows it's not about doing more, it's about doing things well, making them more effective, making those links. That's what gets uh, going to get better results is by the learning being better, not by more. Now, you know, on that kind of uh, vein of procrastination, of efficiency time saving and productivity we hear a lot one of the things that they mention in this article um, is about meaningless tasks um, that people doing now I would say I see this a lot you know I see a lot of people doing different things that that are meaningless you know whether that be sharpening a pencil or whatever whatever um, uh, to procrastinate or fill time do you see that in schools and, and based on what you said there is that a bad thing do we need to address it I think Let's let's just be sensible about it, you know. Uh, there was a pupil I had in my class last year who was expert at this, expert. Somehow their pencil was always blunt. Their pen had always run out. They never had a ruler, ever. Um, and whether they were doing it consciously or subconsciously, as in mind. So I, we got into the routine where at the beginning of the lesson, it would always be a thing of they'd have to get a new pencil, a new pen and everything like that. But actually, this child had so much stuff going on in their life, I couldn't blame them. Actually, I'm going to pick my battles. The fact that after you did all your procrastination, you still sat down and did your task and you did it well, that's what matters. I'm not worried about it. You know, um, we all procrastinate. Before you could do planning, I bet you're making a cup of tea, even though you might not need one, or you move things around or you're tied. Yeah, procrastination is absolutely normal. And sometimes, actually, I feel it can be a release it's not just about delaying work it's just about regulating yourself before you start getting your area ready doing those little things that actually regulate you ready so when you come to do the task you're actually ready to do them well you know if we start like that child for example if I started the lesson by telling him off again for losing his pencil or his pencil being blunt it's such a negative start to lesson he's not going to do well in it so let him crack on and procrastinate as long as he gets to his task that's what matters Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think I read, you know, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about uh, those lessons that I've seen or even had myself where actually, you know, uh, kind of highlighting and putting pressure on. So come on, come on, come on. That doesn't <laughs> yeah. make I, I've never known that make anyone move faster. 
that yeah. almost always makes them move slower. Yeah. Yeah, they'll find something else. I mean, it, it, for those who have got children, I think children are so great um, at bedtime, aren't they? They're experts at it. They, they, and if you, certainly my son is, if I tell him to do something, it, it, it gets slower. Um, I think, yeah, just let's, let's pick our battles. Actually, what is the priority here? Is the priority that they start within 30 seconds or is the priority actually that they just get it done by the end? You know, let's be realistic here because it'll, it'll save you a lot of stress as well. Um, now this next one and it maybe give us an insight into when you were you know had a classroom of your own in the primary school whether you had uh, uh, tables in groups or in rows because the next one that the psychology today article comes up with for adults about obstacles for productivity was about um, how can I cope with distracting co-workers Mm -hmm. so in our version then distracting classmates could be an issue yeah oh definitely um, we all know that person that we shouldn't sit next to in the staff room uh, when there's a staff meeting because you know you'll be gossiping and not actually paying attention. Children are exactly the same. And I'm very, I believe that we should be very honest with children about it. Right. You know, you can't sit next to them. You know why, don't you? Come on, let's talk it through. And I, I have moved children and had that conversation. I'd be like, right. I can't sit next to Mr. James because do you know what? In the staff meeting, we're going to be chatting and we're going to be chatting rubbish, not listening to Mrs. Jones. So, you know, we, we all have people we shouldn't sit next to. You'll get to see them at break anyway. And I think that's again a part of life and it's a lesson for them to learn. Let's not avoid that conversation because they need to learn that because, you know, one day they're going to be choosing their own seats in secondary and they need to learn that actually sometimes it's better not to sit next to someone. And I do find the desks and rows interesting. Like, are your, are, your, are your tables in rows or desks or groups? Mine, mine currently. And so, well, you see, I'm in a unique situation in the sense that because I'm in an alternative provision, mm. my class maybe has 10 kids in it. And so they are all at individual desks, but with a gap between them and they get one desk each, but mm. it's a double-sized desk and then they are all facing forward. Um, but there is interaction with them. That's more about having your own personal space is is the choice behind that I would say sometimes we do put them together and work in group tables Mm. when I was in primary though with a you know we're talking a a class of 30 I did move between um the 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 typical primary model of that kind of free desks where you can sit six kids that kind of ladybird Mm. type layout you know where you have the three desks with one on the end turn the other uh, away so two and then one on the end um and i tried rows but my worry is and i don't know if i fell into this is you know this efficiency saving model of you know you can't talk because we have to get through everything that we have to <laughs> get through and there is pressure and and we have to get through it and I, you know my my real worry about that is whether whether that's good for the, the young people's mental health, first of all, and, mm. and, and sort of harking on something you said about this, this time to process and absorb and, and to think and to go back to it. And when we talk about sharpening pencils, I don't mind that in an art lesson because, you know, to get up, to think about it, get up, sharpen a pencil. Mm. I, I do that work. I go and get myself a cup of tea and sit back down and it, it's processing time for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all just have to use our judgment. You, it, When a child is taking advantage of that, then yes, you know, a conversation has to be had. But, you know, to be creative takes time. And create. I think some people, sometimes we talk about creativity in the sense of like art, music, drama, things like that. But you can be creative in maths. You know, to problem solving is a form of creativity and, and 
we need to give that children that thinking space. Now, I, I'm a very much, I do my thinking out loud, so I need someone to talk to. But other people do their thinking by silence and inward reflection. And I think we need to give opportunities for both of those things in our classroom. So all children get that opportunity to process uh, and to develop that creativity in everything we do, not just in the arts. The final one then, and this kind of brings us full loop back of, of, of these obstacles to adult productivity. And so, we, you know, as we translate them down, mm. was something said in the article about how can I manage competing priorities? And for me, when I read this, I was thinking, like we discussed sort of right at the beginning of this, about writing and, you know, whether they're focusing on their grammar and spelling. And, and you mentioned there that it was a surprise to you sort of earlier on in the show that children would would focus on that or found it hard to ignore that you know but writing itself is a complex task you know particularly in primary when you're even learning to hold the pen learning to shape the letters there's a lot going on for people is is the burden too much sometimes then and that's what's stopping them yeah i i think sometimes we look at the minutiae of things too much um drives me nuts when people talk about correct grammar because there is no such thing as correct grammar um, because grammar is evolving constantly. What it is, is we have formal grammar, but even that's changing constantly. What, what What is the important thing in this task at the end of the day? You know, if we're writing a story, for example, you cannot focus on everything. You can't, you know, I see some of these tick lists that people have for success criteria, and there's like 10 things on there. And I'm like, th those poor children must be thinking about so many things that actually... They're not thinking about what is the thing that they need to do. What's the focus here? Um, and those competing, as you said, those competing priorities. What is the priority for this task? Do you know what? If they've spelt some words wrong, it's no big issue. They can go back. That's what editing days are for. That's what corrections are for. What actually, if we give too many priorities, I think they can be so diluted that they're not going to make the progress. And how on earth would you assess them? That's what I always wonder afterwards as well. How do you know whether they've made progress in 10 different areas? And I can only imagine sort of in your context, but actually certain things are not priorities because those kids have got a lot going on, haven't they? Mm. Hey, you know, some days for me, progress is them holding a door for someone. Some days yeah. progress is them making a cup of tea for a member of staff. And that, 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 that you know, multifaceted, you know, my, my, unfortunately, my learning journeys are somewhat weird and hard to explain, unfortunately, to people. <laughs> I, had a, I had a child today who gave a member of staff a high five. And when I told other staff about that, this was the biggest uproar. You know, it was it was probably on par for us with finding out that, you know, you're teaching a mainstream class and a kid had got an A star in their GCSEs. We were mm. all just like, you know, it's the best day ever. And some of those things, and I know you talked about it earlier about, you know, young people sometimes being in the learning environment is is the priority. And so, you know, managing those priorities. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, we've talked a bit there about teachers putting it on, but can sometimes the children put that on themselves? Because I've certainly, you know, and this is in primary known of, you know, an example where, for instance, there was a, a, a young girl who was spending so much time concentrating on making her handwriting beautiful, mm. that it was slowing the thought process and the flow of everything. So can, can sometimes the children be putting it on themselves in that sense? And what can we do about that? Definitely. And I think we we are learning more and more because then when we when we think about sort of mental health of children, we tend to think of those that are, you know, in care, for example, or have got things like domestic violence going at home. But actually, 
what about the mental health of our children who are more able and are putting on themselves so much pressure to get everything right and perfect and I think sometimes they can be a bit forgotten uh, and we need to look after them just as much and I think this this is my worry about giving lists of success criteria you can overburden them for some for me like I suffer with quite bad anxiety that would cause such horrific anxiety for me that I know my writing would be dreadful because I'd be trying to do everything at once. So one of the other jobs I'm doing at the moment is lecturing and I was talking um, to some international students about structuring essays and things. And, and it was amazing the questions that they were asking were so different. All of them had different priorities. But if I wrote them all on a list and asked them all to do it, their, their essays would be dreadful because they'd be so stressed about ticking all these boxes that actually the, the point of the essay would go. So I think we need to be really careful about actually what we're asking for the children. I, you know, I... <laughs> I, I, I would um, love to show you some of my planning from maybe 2015 <laughs> in England when I was teaching because uh, I remember it was there was a big curriculum change in England at the time, 2014 curriculum, Michael Gove had come in, you know, big shake-up. And yeah. it's when we got the, the, the grammar and the punctuation. Yeah. And, and I remember very clearly being told that, uh, um, and luckily this has changed, nuance has found its way in and, and author author's voice has found its way back into writing but I remember being told that some of the writing wasn't quite um, good enough a child who was fantastic should have been greater depth in fact under the old regime in key stage one they were greater depth but I was told that she couldn't be greater depth anymore in fact she'd be working towards the expected standard so below as in where she should be mm. so dropped a whole two levels um, because she um in a piece of writing, uh, hadn't included four fronted adverbials. Oh, and I was nuts. kind of like, the, 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 like, you know, that, that idea of we're writing and, and crafting, but you have to hit a criteria as well. Yeah. That, that really rings with me about the pressure that must be on some of our young people. Yeah. And, I, and my question would be like, well, that, so that child who cut can obviously use front adverbials, which also a front adverbials because um, my grammar work is is not a thing. It only exists in education. It's not a thing. Um, and but also, what if that child felt that front adverbials weren't suitable for that piece of writing? It's their writing. They should be able to choose whatever they want to use in that writing. It's like when um, uh, I, when I do grammar training, I talk about right, which is the best sentence, and I give them a short sentence and a complex sentence. And they, everyone always goes, well, the complex sentence is better. Look, you know, it's got a subordinate clause. It's got a front adverbial. It's got this vocabulary. I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. You're writing a horror story, which is better. Well, actually, short sentences are far better in horror stories because they create atmosphere. And I think we need to be careful about what it does better mean because it should mean for that individual piece of writing and for that individual as well. And it's that, you mentioned it earlier about the craft of writing, isn't it? It's about teaching them not to tick boxes, but actually how to craft something. Um, now we are rapidly approaching sort of the the end of the show, and we we have whistle stopped across through <laughs> you know all, all kinds of different things, talking about task design, talking about barriers and and motivation and, and all of those. But if there's someone who's listening and uh, you know and, and and they are facing this, where they're thinking, do you know what I I have a young person or I have a, a class that I teach or a group within it, where um, yeah, that moment from me saying we're going to do this. And then them starting doing it, 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 it feels too long for me or it feels awkward. Yeah. What kind of, what would be your top tips 
for them to look at first? I think take the pressure off yourself for one. You're not going to fix this in a day. Um, these things take time and take a step back get to know that child get to know the background of that child including the background in school and, and try to work out what what is actually their barrier to writing the barrier to writing is not them not wanting to put pen to paper it'll be something else that's causing it and then try to tackle those background things rather than the task itself but don't beat yourself up about it these things take time as long as you're trying that's that's the most important thing Fantastic. Now, uh, thank you so much for coming coming on with us tonight, giving up your time to come on and kind of share your thoughts on uh, here on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, I should say, if you've just joined us live in the studio, as we're wrapping up, this will be available as a podcast afterwards, either at ttradio.org slash listenback, where you can use the search feature to search any, I think we're at 1,500 episodes. You can sort of search <laughs> any of our past episodes and find anything. So you could type in there grammar you could type in their motivation and it would pull up all of the episodes it'll also be on itunes spotify amazon in fact do you know i found out the other day you can actually ask your amazon alexa which i won't do now because it will start talking back to me but you can <laughs> say to your amazon um say uh play teachers talk radio it'll play teachers talk radio for you um, and you'll be able to do that but yeah uh if people wanted to reach out and find you though ian uh, is there a way that they could do that yeah, the best way is either on my Twitter, which is at itimbrell, that's T-I-M-B-R-E-L-L, or you can follow me on Instagram um, and TikTok now, actually, I'm on TikTok now. Um, see, I was 40 this year, but still down with the kids. Um, so, and uh, you can find me on Instagram at Timbrel Education. Fantastic. And again, thank you so much for being on. Um, best of luck with the, the, you know, the keeping up with the Welsh with your, your son and partner. <laughs> you know, I... I th- being in a bilingual household must be you know challenging at times particularly when they gang up on you but and i think it's just going to get worse so i just need to brace it i need to embrace it it's going to happen just embrace it and pretend you don't know what's going on yeah (laughs) Yeah. definitely just use it to your advantage well thank you so much and nostar yeah nostar thank you so much for inviting me on i've had uh, a great time thank you You right and uh, good night everyone we'll see you later don't forget there's more shows to come up on teachers talk radio this evening so come back later nine o'clock we'll have another show up for you and good night from here in swansea nostar and uh we'll see you next time you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.